0: Hello, and welcome to Words on Film, the spoken word podcast dedicated to moving pictures. I'm Dan Burke, your host and movie critic, and I'm here to tell you exactly what I think of some of the latest movies out right now. I'm back after a two week hiatus. The first weekend that I was off was Memorial Day weekend, uh, 2023. And I was actually away with my girlfriend uh, on vacation, out of town. And the next weekend, I actually had something uh, career-wise to do on the Saturday morning when I usually record this show. So I wasn't able to do my show then either. But I'm back. I have not stopped watching movies. And I actually got to do a little bit of catch-up when it comes to the movies that I have to review. And I'm not even getting into all the movies that I've seen over the last two or three weeks, but I'm getting to a lot of the major ones. So I am going to start with the film that is still number one at the box office as of the date this podcast is being recorded, and it's also the one that most people are talking about these days. The first movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse. This is not part of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, but it is a film that is brought to you by Sony, which is, of of course, outside of Disney, but it does uh, feature many of the Marvel Comics characters, particularly Miles Morales, who is also Spider-Man in his respective part of the Spider-Verse. It is the sequel to the Academy Award-winning Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, which came out Five years ago, and very similar to that film, it is set in a shared multiverse of alternate universes, which is called the Spider Verse. And the first film, uh, Spider-Man: Into the Spider Verse, which was excellent, and I'm not just saying that because it won an Academy Award. It it impressed me in very many other ways too. But the first film, which came out around Christmas time in 2018, was directed by Bob Persichetti. Pete Ramsey, and Rodney Rothman. And this movie is actually directed by also three other people, but interestingly enough, not the same directors. Uh, It's directed by Joaquin Dos Santos, Kemp Powers, and Justin K. Thompson. But you wouldn't exactly know it because it has the same kind of spirit from the original film. And much of the original voice cast from the original movie comes back to reprise their roles, although there are a lot of other characters, a lot, a lot of other characters. But the main cast, such as Shameik Moore, who plays the voice of Miles Morales slash Spider-Man, and Haley Steinfeld, who returns as Gwen Stacy and Spider-Woman, also come back to reprise their roles as well. So even though there are different directors, The animation looks just as incredible, if not more so, than the original, and the spirit of the story stays basically the same. So we're introduced first, or we're reintroduced uh, first to Gwen Stacy, who's part of the Spider-Verse that's called Earth-65. How that part of the Spider-Verse got its name, I don't exactly know. But Gwen Stacy is struggling to live up to the expectations of her police captain father, who does not know she is Spider-Woman. And years prior, as we know, Gwen accidentally... Oh, I shouldn't actually reveal that because it's a its a spoiler for Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. But I will hold back. But anyway... Uh, One night, Gwen Stacy heads to the Guggenheim Museum in Manhattan after hearing reports of an intruder and encounters a version of the Vulture from an Italian Renaissance-themed alternate universe. And the uh, Vulture, by the way looks amazing. It's, it's sort of interesting because the Vulture looks almost sort of in an unfinished animated kind of style, but it also looks very lined up with uh, Renaissance art as well. And to see that kind of animation move is quite incredible. But while Gwen Stacy is attempting to fight off the Vulture, she starts to meet other spider people who have crossed into her version of the Spider-Verse from other Spider-Verses as well. And we're reintroduced to Miles Morales in Brooklyn on the part of the Spider-Verse that's called Earth 1610. Again, I don't know why these particular parts of the Spider-Verse have their name or their particular number assigned. I don't exactly know. But Miles Morales in this section of the Spider-Verse is also adapting to being Spider-Man while missing Gwen from the first film as they met as spider versus collided and struggled and is struggling to live up to his parents' expectations. And while he is heading to a parent teacher evaluation at school, he encounters the spot, a scientist whose body was infused with portals after the Alchemax collider explosion. And the spot is voiced by Jason Schwartzman and the spot blaming miles for his dilemma, brings Miles to Alchemax and reveals that the spider that bit Miles came from another universe when the spot was testing the Collider. He then accidentally transports himself into a void where he learns to travel to other universes containing the Alchemax Collider to use them to empower himself. So in this film, Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse, unlike the first movie, Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, It's similar. The the two movies are similar in the sense that Spider-Verses and sections of the Spider-Verse collide and different versions of Spider-Man come together. But unlike Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse and Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse, there are a lot more different versions of Spider-Man. And whereas the first movie, Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, had one anthropomorphic. Spider-Man, that was Spider-Pig, who was voiced by John Mullaney. this movie has other anthropomorphic Spider-Men as well. But that's not entirely the selling point. There is actually a moral dilemma in which Miles Morales encounters, and he actually finds that Peter Parker, in another section of the Spider-Verse, is less his ally and becomes more of his adversary. Now, does that mean that this peter parker is an enemy not necessarily but there is a moral dilemma when it comes to not only miles morales's involvement in the spider verse but also the fact that he knows something bad is going to happen to one of his a person close to him one of his loved ones but the the catch 22 of that is if he tries to go into the Spider-Verse or another section of the Spider-Verse and try to stop this thing from happening, he could eventually break something really bad in the space-time continuum. And the movie, while I won't reveal how it ends, is not going to be the last film of the Spider-Verse animated spider man but it does end with... The dreaded words that might be good for TV shows in in that you can tune in next week or next season to see the next part, but the words to be continued are words you don't necessarily want to see at the very end of a film, but you get those at the end here. So that's kind of a bit of a spoiler, but I'm not revealing any of the major plot points that get up to this point, but even without those words to be continued, a lot of people are going to be very excited about the next animated Spider-Man movie, and this movie gives them a lot about which to be excited. I wouldn't say that Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse is better than Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. I think sometimes the incantations of Spider-Man from the other multiverse get a little dizzying sometimes. And there are other versions of Spider-Man that I think they kind of put in there either to entertain people who are just watching this less for Cinematic value and more for sort of a roller coaster ride or a carnival ride, if you will, and maybe even to sell toys as well. I mean, there were instances here and there, but fortunately, to the movie's credit, Spider Man Across the Spider Verse, it does maintain a narrative focus. But I do think if they made this a three-hour movie, it might be difficult for somebody with my schedule like me to see it, but I would definitely make time, and so would many other people. But it does run at more than two hours, but I don't think anybody really minds, which is why I give Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse my rating of a marginal knockout. It is still incredibly entertaining. The voice cast of just about every character here is perfectly done. Shameik Moore and Haley Steinfeld are also re- really great at their respective roles. and there are other people who return from the other movies, like, for example, Jake Johnson, who is uh, Peter Parker. And there's also uh, some other voice talent as well that I don't really have time to get into, but the point is there are a lot there, there's a lot to see here. I think it certainly ups the ante in terms of how sequels should be. But also, it makes me want to see the other one, even though I was profoundly disappointed by seeing the words to be continued at the end. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is The Little Mermaid, i.e. the live-action 2023 remake of the animated musical fantasy film that is another entry in the repertoire of the controversial Disney live-action remakes of animated films and it is of course a remake of the 1989 film which, while not perfect, was Disney's true comeback film after years of languishing or underperforming expectations at the box office. It brought Disney back to form and it also kicked off what is now retrospectively known as the Disney Renaissance. And a lot of people had valid concerns, including myself, that if The Little Mermaid is such a classic film, the animated version, why remake it? But there were still some things about it which really excited me. I was very eager to see how Hallie Bailey performed as Ariel in this film, and I knew from seeing her on shows like Groanish, that she can sing and she can act, and that is a major plus. And the casting of Halle Bailey gotten a major backlash on the worldwide interwebs, particularly because she is a black actress playing a white character. And some really ridiculous people have started a hashtag calling not my mermaid, you know, and If you don't want to claim her as your mermaid, yeah, I guess that's your prerogative, but give her a chance for God's sake because there are more pressing issues in this messed up world we live in besides somebody of a different race playing a character of another race, especially in this instance. But getting back to the movie The Little Mermaid, there were things that I loved about this live action remake. There were things that I liked about it. There were things that I didn't like about it, but there wasn't anything that I particularly hated about it. One thing that I think director Rob Marshall and undoubtedly some other members of the crew as well did really well was he was able to differentiate it enough from the 1989 film while also maintaining something distinctive about it. Sometimes it worked and sometimes it didn't. Director Rob Marshall is no stranger to directing musicals. He actually made his feature film debut as a director directing Chicago in 2002, and that's a film that won Best Picture at the Oscars, and it's kind of interesting how the time works because at the time... When Steve Martin hosted the Oscars in, in 2003, he said, Chicago is so rare. It's a best picture contender that everyone actually likes. But years later, decades later, Chicago makes it on a list of films that shouldn't have won best picture. So I disagree. I thought Chicago was fantastic and I'm not just speaking retrospectively either, or nostalgically. But Rob Marshall has directed some other films, some of which were musicals, some of which were not. He directed Nine, which was based on Federico Fellini's Eight and a Half, which starred Daniel Day-Lewis, which should have been better than it ultimately was, but it was critically panned and also was a commercial flop. He directed Into the Woods, which was a Disney film, which shouldn't have been. And I thought that Into the Woods was one of those rare films that was perfectly cast, Every person in the film was great in their role. The problem was the setup of the story compared to the original Broadway musical directed by Stephen Sondheim. It was supposed to be kind of a send up of these music, or rather, these fairy tales, kind of uh, in a parody style like The Simpsons or Robot Chicken. But I think Into the Woods played it a little too straight. Plus, it should have been half building up to Happily Ever After and the other half the consequences when these characters got everything they wanted. Instead, because it was a Disney film, it was two-thirds building up to the Happily Ever After and the one-third getting through all the un- uncomfortable stuff as quickly as possible. I didn't really like that, but I still thought it was a valiant effort, just not a perfect film. And then Rob Marshall directed Mary Poppins Returns, which I thought was excellent, and It was a sequel to Mary Poppins, not a live-action remake. And while it took some liberties in sort of remaking some scenes from the original Mary Poppins, I still thought it was very good, and Emily Blunt did a good job playing Mary Poppins in that. So now this brings us to The Little Mermaid, which is Rob Marshall's first film, or first, yeah, first film and also first film uh, under the Disney banner since then. And I think the musical parts of this film were pretty spot on. And Halle Bailey was, I think, a great casting choice here. I am saying that because I knew she could act and I knew she could sing. And she definitely sang the hell out of a lot of these uh classic songs like Part of Your World, and she even got some bars in the song Under the Sea, and she actually did pretty well singing that more as a duet with Sebastian the Crab than she did having it sung to her, and I certainly appreciated that much, and I did like Melissa McCarthy also as Ursula the Sea Witch, and I think Melissa McCarthy didn't do sort of the kind of acting that made her famous as a comedy star. I think she also kind of stayed true to the original character. But what I thought was that just about everyone else in this film was miscast, especially Javier Bardem as King Triton. And the first issue that I had with Javier Bardem being cast as King Triton is the fact that you have a black little mermaid and she has a white father. And I thought that could be a bit problematic. But it was even more problematic when you see her his other daughters in addition to Ariel and they're all women of different races. One's white, one is Indian, and I'm I'm thinking while I am not I'm absolutely not opposed to people of different races being in this kind of remake. It It's problematic because it suggests that King Triton has been bumping fins with other mermaids in order to create these daughters. So it makes King Triton out to be a polygamist or a player or something very, very uh, controversial like that. So I think that makes the hiring of other women of other races playing Ariel's sisters less progressiveness and more tokenism, which I think is very problematic. Plus, Javier Bardem's performance in this movie is almost like Javier Bardem had a head cold. He was very morose, almost less like he was playing King Triton and more like he was playing Anton Chigurh from No Country for Old Men. One of his best performances, by the way, for which he deservedly won an Oscar. But here, it didn't quite work. And I I was very surprised that Javier Bardem didn't have as much versatility in his role as King Triton. I actually found out through uh, my online research that... Terry Crews was in consideration to play King Triton. And even though Terry Crews has fewer Oscar nominations, let alone Oscar wins than Javier Bardem, I think Terry Crews would have been a better choice. Not only would it have been more credible for him to have been Halle Bailey's father, I also think that he actually probably would have given this movie or his role in this film a bit more juice than Javier Bardem gave it. But I was especially I was even more disappointed by the the way that some of the CGI side characters looked and the way and and some of the voice actors who were assigned to them. Like for example, Sebastian the crab in this film is voiced by David Diggs, who is American, and he gives Sebastian a Caribbean accent, but. I was disappointed because David Diggs, even though he might have some Caribbean ancestry, I don't exactly know, I wasn't really buying his Jamaican accent. It it almost sounded like an American trying to do a Jamaican accent. The irony of this is the original voice of Sebastian the Crab, the late, great Samuel Wright, was not Jamaican himself or not from the Caribbean. He was actually born and raised in South Carolina, but he did a much, much better accent than David Diggs gives to this character. I was also annoyed, very annoyed, that A, Scuttle the Seagull was a woman in this, and B, he slash she was voiced by Aquafina. Now, Aquafina, like David Diggs, Javier Bardem, and the other people I say I had a problem with in this film. I like them in other movies especially Aquafina I think she's delightful and there are even some drama films in which I've seen Aquafina where she's done a great job but here her voice was very very grating and there are also some th- there were also some things that Scuttle did like for example Ariel didn't come up to the surface to see Scuttle Scuttle dove down to sort of mid-sea level to see Ariel and didn't come up for you know, 10 minutes, it seems to get some air. And I don't think that seagulls are actually able to stay underwater for that long. I could go on and on about various other things about this film that kind of annoyed me, but in terms of Prince Eric, he's played by Jonah Howard King. And I think he does a decent job as Eric. I thought that the chemistry between him and Halle Bailey was pretty good, but Again, there is that kind of tokenism that, that comes into play here where, you, unlike in the original animated film, Prince Eric has parents, and you actually see them, or at least one of them. In uh, this film, Prince Eric's mother is Queen Selina, and she's pl- and she is played by Noma DuMazwini, who is a black actress. And... Jonah Howard King is white. And I normally wouldn't have a problem with this, except that there, there are certain scenes where Jonah Howard King as Eric explains to Halle Bailey that those aren't his parents and you know Queen Selina is not his mother and that he was adopted. And I felt like the only reason, the only reason that Prince Eric was given that sort of character development, was to explain why he has a black mother. Again, it's that troubling tokenism that really kind of took me out of the film. And it didn't really contribute to Prince Eric's overall character development in a very positive way. So, I think The Little Mermaid is semi-decent. I think that the, the CGI is sometimes hit or miss. I think the bottom of the ocean looked amazing, but I thought that Sebastian the crab looked less like a real crab and more like a robot. And there were some things that were just altogether very forgettable here. Hallie Bailey in the titular role did an amazing job. I thought she was the best casting choice. Melissa McCarthy came in a relatively close second here, but there was a lot more griping that I had about the fact that this movie was made into a a live action film and it might as well have just stayed animated. And I, I think that's the gripe that a lot of people have with Disney live action films. But because... So many people went to see this movie, and it's been doing very well at the box office. It's not going to be the last Disney live-action film, but I do give it credit for at least diverging, respectively, in some instances, away from the original, unlike the live-action remake of The Lion King that was directed by Jon Favreau back in uh, 2019. That was a far greater disappointment than the, than this version of The Little Mermaid, which is why I give the live-action remake of The Little Mermaid my rating of a checkout. I think that Halle Bailey in the titular role did an amazing job. I'd love to see her in other things. And there were things that were serviceable, but there was a lot of miscasting, a lot of somewhat shoddy CGI, and... Other than that, I, I liked it, but I didn't exactly love it. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is The Machine. This is a live-action American comedy that opened in theaters on May 26, 2023 and stars Burt Kreischer as the titular machine. And this is apparently a name that Burt Kreischer has as a nickname. I don't know if he gave it to himself. Or if he was given it later, like in his college days. But Bert Kreischer in this film plays himself. And for those of you who don't know Bert Kreischer, he is an American stand-up comedian, podcaster, reality television host, and actor. Interestingly enough, he was born on November 3rd, 1972. And the reason this is amazing is because I was born on November 3rd, 1982. So it's kind of fascinating when you, when you realize that there are some people out there who are born on the same day as you, maybe exactly a decade apart. But for those of you who don't know, he made a name for himself actually in 1997 in a way that colleges do not want you to make a name for yourself, but he was featured in an article in Rolling Stone while attending Florida State University and the magazine and talk about a a distinction from a major publication when you're in college. So Rolling Stone magazine at the time named Kreischer and I quote the top partier at the number one party school in the country. And interestingly enough, Oliver Stone after reading that article in Rolling Stone bought the movie rights for Burt Kreischer's life and also his moniker. In that respect. And while eventually Oliver Stone gave up the rights, it would have been really fascinating to see what kind of movie Oliver Stone would have made from buying the rights to to Burt Kreischer's life or at least reputation because Oliver Stone to this day hasn't made a comedy, but... Burt Kreischer's life was the inspiration for the 2002 film National Lampoon's Van Wilder starring Ryan Reynolds and Tara Reid in addition to Cal Penn, Tim Matheson and other people. So the machine is like Van Wilder based on Burt Kreischer's life, career and reputation. But unlike Van Wilder, it is directly about Burt Kreischer with Burt Kreischer playing a fictionalized version of himself. So this film is actually a take on a standup routine, a specific standup routine that Burt Kreischer did and it went viral in 2016. And this stand up routine involved Bert Kreischer going on a trip to Russia in nineteen ninety nine when he was a college freshman. And in during one night of drinking and hard partying, he befriends a tour guide named Igor along with his friends and he earns the title the machine. And he turns his story, not just about drunken debauchery, but also about stealing a watch into a comedy special that goes viral on YouTube. Now, this actually happened, but this movie sort of asked the question, what if somebody from Russia really wanted that watch back, they saw the video on YouTube, they understood it, and... They also wanted to seek vengeance on Bert Kreischer for stealing that watch. And admittedly, the watch is not a very good MacGuffin. Once you actually see what the watch looks like, it looks like a very ordinary pocket watch. It doesn't look particularly ornate or ostentatious. And I think if it did, and this is probably faulting the the prop department in this movie, I think that probably would have made it a better kind of MacGuffin. But regardless, even though the watch is not all that spectacular... First of all, Bert Kreischer doesn't know exactly where it is, and secondly, he gets visited in his lavish home in the United States by Arena, who is a mobster, who's played by a woman who is maybe not be Russian, but she's probably Eastern European, by the name of Eva Bobek, and Eva Bobek is one of the best things about this film. Not only is she stunningly beautiful, but she also kicks major ass. She kicks so much major ass that she is likely to be in another action film in the near future. And I wouldn't be surprised if they make another Fast and Furious movie if she's in it. But in addition to Burt Kreischer being basically kidnapped by Irina, uh, his father, Albert Kreischer Sr., who's played by Mark Hamill, finds himself as an unwilling accomplice who goes with him back to Russia in order to find this watch as well as find the tour guide whose name is Igor. But because Igor is a name like John or William in the, well, Igor in Russia is like the name John or William in the United States, i.e. it is a very, very common name. It makes Bert Kreischer's mission to find Igor and find the watch so his life isn't at stake much more difficult now. If an American comedian like uh, Bert Kreischer were going to Russia, I would imagine in a movie like this, I would like him to maybe do something grandiose like kill Vladimir Putin. I think he would be a hero in the United States as well as the Ukraine if he did that. But then again, there have been there has been another film about killing a controversial dictator, namely The Interview, that not only earned the ear of North Korea, but it also altogether wasn't a very fasc- fascinating or very funny movie. It was okay, but it wasn't as great as it potentially could have been. And largely, that was the fault of James Franco. But... Burt Kreischer, I think, does a pretty good job playing himself. Mark Hamill does an amazing job playing Burt Kreischer's father. And it's not particularly well explained or elaborated what the issue is between Burt Kreischer and his father. But I think that Mark Hamill, in particular, does a really good job both playing what's endearing about Burt Kreischer's father, as well as what rubs Burt Kreischer as an adult the wrong way based on how he was raised. And the scenes between Burt Kreischer and Mark Hamill are quite amazing. And Mark Hamill, excuse me, Burt Kreischer actually does a lot of Pop culture trivia dropping here. He does a really bad imitation of Austin Powers, for example, that the Russian people love. What that says about Russians, I don't exactly know, but I'm just going to assume that it's not a bad thing. But fortunately, with all the pop culture trivia that, or the pop culture references that Burk Kreischer makes, and some of the parodies that he has, I am so thankful that Star Wars was not alluded to in this film. Because I think it shows that Mark Hamill can play other live-action roles very well besides Luke Skywalker. And Mark Hamill, in addition to Eva Bobek, was my favorite part of this movie. And the machine, I think, was a bit predictable in its story. And I think some things, particularly the action sequences, were a little too over the top. Kind of like Cocaine Bear. But also like Cocaine Bear, there were some parts in this movie that I that I find myself chuckling when I saw it. There were some lines that Mark Hamill spoke that were just flat-out funny, but I think it was, while it did have its weaknesses and it wasn't a perfect film, it's a film that did make me laugh, and I could definitely see this film becoming a cult classic at least five years from now, which is why I give The Machine my rating of a checkout. And I do have to say that if I knew a guy like Bert Kreischer in college, I would probably hate him. And I would probably hate him even more because of the fact that he became rich and famous from being a party boy. But I think there is enough in this film to make me go on the side of Bert Kreischer, and especially when he's sidelined and also finds himself being kidnapped by a Russian mobster and finds himself also going to Russia while also not trying to drop any hints particularly to people who are closer to him, like his wife and his daughters, that he's actually being kidnapped. I thought that was actually a good plot development. I just think the film could have been a bit funnier in various places, but I think that if it hadn't been for Mark Hamill playing his father and also Eva Babik playing both the heroine as well as the straight woman, I think this film would have been... Largely forgettable, but it could have had some improvement in terms of its laughs as well as its prop department and making us actually care about this watch that's gone missing. But overall, I think it was a serviceable comedy that I think might get some more appreciation later on. We'll see, of course. <laughs> Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is About My Father, which also happens to be a comedy where the central character of the film is a fictionalized version of the person who's actually playing him. In this case... It is Sebastian Maniscalco, who is a stand-up comedian who I have seen on some uh, talk shows and some YouTube videos from time to time. And he is very funny, especially when he has uh, stand-up comedy bits about his life and his relationship with his father, who in this movie is played by Robert De Niro. And even though I like Robert De Niro very, very much as an actor, both in, uh, especially in dramas, but also in comedies, I was a little apprehensive about Robert De Niro being in this film playing a cantankerous father. And the reason I say that is because he was in another movie uh, years ago, I think it was back in 2016, with Zac Efron, which was called Bad Grandpa. And that movie was really, really really bad. I It was definitely shooting towards the, uh, or sort of scraping the bottom of the barrel when it came to uh, humor. And a lot of it, while I do have a raunchy, sick, and twisted sense of humor, wasn't really getting to me. And there were some scenes, uh, including uh, part of Robert De Niro I never, ever want to see. I hadn't wanted to see it before, and I don't want to see it again shown on screen hopefully it was a body double but it still made me wince when i saw it but fortunately about my father is not as bad a comedy as bad grandpa and i appreciated it for that reason but then again it did have some predictable elements to it so sebastian maniscalco is the son of an italian immigrant uh whose name is salvo maniscalco who's a real person but in this movie he's played by Robert De Niro. And Robert De Niro does speak a considerable amount of ta- Italian in this movie. And I think that Robert De Niro is bilingual. If not, it certainly fooled me, especially considering that the the role that put him on the map and made him a household name in The Godfather Part 2 was not only critically acclaimed when he played the young Vito Corleone, but it also won him his first Academy Award for Best Supporting Actor, which was very deserved, by the way. But in that movie, The Godfather Part Two, he spoke Italian throughout the entire movie. And that's very impressive. Granted, Robert De Niro is, of course, of Italian descent, but he is American-born. But he really had to work on that, and his dedication paid off, obviously. Uh, it made him the, the star he is today. So the the parts where he speaks Italian uh, are, of course, great, but also Salvo Maniscalco plays a working-class uh, hairstylist who has made a name for himself styling women's hair. And Sebastian Maniscalco grows up and becomes a hotel concierge, and he also develops an, a relationship with an American girlfriend by the name of Ellie, who is an artist who comes from a very wealthy family, and she's played by Leslie Bibb. And Leslie Bibb has a lot of times been typecast as the other woman. In other words, she's the woman that is either with the protagonist of a film or she's somebody who the protagonist of a film desires before the protagonist moves on to another uh, woman who's a better fit for him. But Leslie Bibb, I think over the last few years in movies and TV shows, has broken away from that typecasting. And here, she and Sebastian Maniscalco have great romantic chemistry together. But the bricks sort of uh, fall out of place when she invites uh, Sebastian to her family's summer home, ...for a 4th of July weekend with her parents. And it's then that you realize that she comes from not only a wealthy family... ...but a family whose lineage traces back to the pilgrims who came to this country in 1619. And if if you probably go back even further... ...this family probably dates back to when the Anglos met the Saxons. And (laughs) they are uh, certainly uh, quite the family... Um, <laughs> the, uh, the patriarch of the family is a man by the name of Bill, who's a hotel magnet, who's played by David Rash. And while David Rash is not a household name, he is somebody you have definitely seen in movies and TV shows when it comes to somebody playing uh, an uptight upper crust kind of guy. And it's one of those things where if you see his face, you could probably identify at least five film projects in which he's acted. And he's married to a controversial Republican senator by the name of Tigger. That's her nickname. And she's played by Kim Cattrall. Also breaking against uh, typecasting, especially from her role as Samantha Jones on Sex and the City. And I have not seen an entire episode of Sex and the City from beginning to end. But I've seen enough YouTube clips of Samantha Jones to know that mm, (laughs) there, um. I can't say too much more because I am engaged, but you know what I mean. So, the this family also has a couple of sons who I probably wouldn't like in real life, although they do have personality traits that I know very well from having gone to a private college and a private grad school. I'm not like either of these people, and thank God for that. But there's one son whose name is Lucky, and he's played by Anders Holm as sort of an interesting combination of uh, Donald Trump Jr. and Colin Jost. In other words, somebody I really, really don't like. But he's somebody who wears his sweaters tied around his neck, he knows how to cater to wealthy clients, And he plays golf. And Anders Holm, to his credit, does a great job playing this really obnoxious wasp who revels in his family's affluence. But there's also another son named Doug who's played by Brett Deer, who also, um, well, he's not quite as upper crust as... Uh, lucky Anders home character, but he is definitely rebelling from his family in a way that is also very obnoxious and what I've also seen from private trust fund wasps as well. He grows a beard. He has these bowls that are made out of crystal that he uses as healing bowls. He's kind of this He's, he's sort of buying into this being a new age healer. He's also very obnoxious. And I think the, the weakest parts of this film were when he's on screen. Cause I didn't think his comic timing was very good. I did think that when Ms. Sebastian Maniscalco and Robert De Niro got together, I did really believe them as father and son. And they also had great chemistry, almost kind of as if Robert De Niro actually raised Sebastian Maniscalco himself. And that's probably a testament to Robert De Niro's abilities as a method actor, which are really uh, very impressive. And I, the uh, Collins family, of which Leslie Bibb's character is a part, are very waspy. They are... Uh, nice to a certain extent, but they also have character traits that you know rub people the wrong way, including Leslie Bibb's character. And I do think the best parts of this movie are not only with Sebastian Maniscalco and Robert De Niro or Sebastian Maniscalco and Leslie Bibb, but also when her character starts to rebel a bit against her waspy upbringing. And I thought there were some neat parts of the film, but there were some parts of the film that were also somewhat short on laughs, particularly where the the Doug Collins character is on screen. And there was also one scene where Sebastian Maniscalco is trying this water equipment for the first time and his trousers drop. And while that could have been funny for about five seconds. The movie kind of prolongs that part over and over and it actually makes it even more outrageous showing some nudity, but you know, when it happened the first five seconds, I laughed, but as it, as the scene progressed, I kind of thought, okay, can we cut to the next scene please? And there's also another scene involving Robert De Niro's character doing Kim Cattrall's hair. And I thought the way that scene played out was particularly unrealistic because it it results in her getting a bad haircut. But again, uh, that seemed like a a cheap laugh. But I did think that there was another part where uh, Chris Hayes from MSNBC actually makes a cameo interviewing Kim Contral's character on TV, and I think the lines that came from that bad haircut or the exchange between Chris Hayes and Kim Cattrall were actually very good. So About My Father is very much like The Machine, hit or miss, but I think also like The Machine, the relationships between these characters are probably the best parts of this film, which is why I give About My Father my rating of a checkout although a lower rating of a checkout than The Machine. I think The Machine has a lot more bigger belly laughs than About My Father, as well as also being a a little less predictable in plot. But About My Father does have some things that I really liked and I didn't exactly expect to like. And I also think that when it reached for more higher-brow humor, it actually worked out pretty well, but I do think that the cast, whether I like them in this film or I didn't like them, I do think they played their roles very well. Anders Holm in particular made me want to punch him in the face, but that's only because he played this kind of preppy boy so well, so I give Anders Holm absolute credit for playing this kind of role as well as he does for me to dislike him as much as I do. So About My Father is okay. I think it's probably worth seeing on streaming, but probably not worth paying full price at the movies to see. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic Dan Burke. And now that I've reviewed all the movies that I have to review for you for this show, it's now time for me to get into my final segment, which is what's coming up next. This is a spoken word preview of movies that are subject to being released in theaters and or on streaming for the weekend, or excuse me, the week of June twelfth through June 16th, 2023. And there are a lot of big movies that are coming out this weekend, which for some people in this country are the uh, is the first weekend of the summer. And here in the South, and I'm really not used to this, um, having been born and raised in New England, they get out of school in late May. Whereas us in New England, depending on the kinds of snowstorms we get, get out in mid to late June. But then again, kids in the South go back to school in August. And I can't even fathom uh, going back to August, you know, when I was a schoolboy. But regardless, there are a lot of big movies coming out and many of them I will be reviewing for you on next week's show. The biggest movie, or one of the biggest films that will be appearing in theaters on Friday, June 16th, is a film by Disney Pixar called Elemental, and it follows an unlikely pair, Ember and Wade. Ember is made out of fire, and Wade is made out of water, which, despite the movie being called Elemental, fire and water are not technically elements, they're compounds, but... I will pat myself on the back for being a chemistry geek because I did so badly in chemistry when I was in college. Really, really badly. I tried my best. But anyway. Anyway, uh, Ember and Wade uh, live in a city where fire, water, land, and air residents live together. Interestingly enough, um, with Captain Planet, would would Hart be another resident? I, I don't know, but... Captain Planet is a Hanna-Barbera production. Elemental is Disney, so opposite ends of the animation spectrum. But this movie looks uh, pretty good. Um, Disney-Pixar has had a bit of a struggle over the last year. Granted, Turning Red was a big hit for them, but it was not released in theaters. It was actually released on Disney+, Plus. whereas Lightyear, the spin-off film to Toy Story, was released in theaters and was a critical and commercial failure. I didn't think that Lightyear was as bad as other people said it was, but it was probably the worst Disney Pixar film to be released so far for a variety of reasons. But it was still pretty good. I think probably Disney Pixar's worst film is better than one of Illumination's best films. So, you know, there's that. But anyway, Elemental is a film that I will see and I will let you know what I think on next week's show. Well, that's all the time I have for this episode of Words on Film. I always love talking about movies and I hope you liked what you heard. If you did, please subscribe and rate the show and leave comments if you can. I would love to get your feedback, even if it's more criticism than praise. This has been Words on Film. I'm Dan Burke, and until my next episode, I'll see you at the movies.